Hi everyone, Dr. Celine Gounder here. I'm the host of In Sickness and In Health. Poor health, it isn't random. On this podcast, we explain what exactly is making millions of Americans sick and what we can do about it. It isn't just about politicians arguing in Washington or what kind of insurance you have. Health is a symptom of something much bigger. Those are the stories we bring you season after season. This holiday season, give the gift of storytelling. Stories about our health, stories for impact. Please consider becoming a member. Go to glow.fm, G-L-O-W slash in sickness and in health and make a contribution today. We're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so your gift is tax deductible. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Now, here's the show. People like to think that movements are just these spontaneous things that, you know, the grievances pile up and people get together and they go protest and picket and that changes laws. And that's not the way that movements tend to operate. The NRA has embraced this culture war and fully, explicitly, openly aligned itself with conservatives and Republicans because it's working. It works, it works, it works. Welcome back to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. On November 2, 1963, people across America were watching as the world turns, when suddenly... Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. The rifle that killed President Kennedy was bought through a mail-order catalog. The fact that it was that easy for JFK's assassin to get a gun and kill the leader of the free world kickstarted our modern debate about gun regulation in the U.S. But it would be another five years before the nation would take action. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Place of issued in all points. Senator Robert F. Kennedy, after winning the California primary here tonight, Senator Kennedy was wounded. It's our understanding he was hit twice in the head, once above the right ear and once around the forehead. It took the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy for Congress to finally do something and pass the Gun Control Act in 1968. And we've come here to the cabinet room today to sign the most comprehensive gun control law ever signed in this nation's history. President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the bill into law during a ceremony at the White House. And some of you may be interested in knowing really what this bill does. It stops murder by mail order. It bars the interstate sale of all guns and the bullets that load them. But if you listen back to that signing ceremony, Johnson doesn't sound like a president who won a big victory. 
He sounds morose, disappointed. But this bill, as big as this bill is, still falls short because we just could not get the Congress to carry out the requests we made of them. I ask for the national registration of all guns and the licenses of those who carry those guns. And if guns are to be kept out of the hands of the criminal and out of the hands of the insane and out of the hands of the irresponsible, then we just must have licensing. His next words must be one of the great political understatements of the 20th century. The voices that blocked these safeguards were not the voices of an aroused nation. They were the voices of a powerful lobby, a gun lobby, that has prevailed for the moment. The Gun Control Act set in motion a series of events that we're still living with today. That strategy actually contributed in some ways to the politicization of the National Rifle Association and the creation of the Take No Prisoners organization that we know today. And created a new political identity in America, one built around the Second Amendment. The NRA, their power derives from their most deeply passionate and committed core members. And those core members are deeply conservative individuals who believe not only in gun rights, but an array of conservative issues that align with uh, individual rights and freedoms. Survey after survey shows a majority of Americans want stricter gun laws. But Congress doesn't pass them. Why? The more interesting and more fundamental paradox is most people want stricter gun laws, but they don't organize to advocate for them. Well, that might finally be changing. We're seeing the beginnings of a gun reform movement where women in particular are running for office, having kind of gotten some political experience mobilizing around gun reform. President Johnson concluded his speech with these words. So now we must complete the task which this long-needed legislation begins. We have come a long way. We have made much progress, but not near enough. Those words are just as true today as they were 50 years ago. On this episode of In Sickness and in Health, the American Gun Movements. So my name is Kristen Goss, and I'm the Kevin D. Gorder Associate Professor of Public Policy and Political Science at Duke University. She's also the author of Disarmed, The Missing Movement for Gun Control in America. Kristen has been writing about guns in America since before the Columbine shooting. I was perplexed by how we could have so many traumatic incidents of gun violence, whether it's epidemics of street crime or assassinations of prominent people or mass shootings at high schools. And yet a movement had never really solidified um, for the long term to kind of push for reforms. So she started looking for clues in the history of gun reform. Kristen says there was still a lot of faith in big government solutions to big problems in the 1960s. But by the 1970s, things were changing. What became pretty clear is that when the movement began to try to form in the 1970s, there was this 
uh, desire to kind of fix the problem once and for all in one fell swoop. And so gun reformers were immediately looking to you know, ban commonly owned weapons at the national level. So I have one piece of legislation that would just sort of take care of the problem by banning guns. The political logic, I think, was pretty naive. Any kind of bold national strategy was going to affect a lot of people who were never going to misuse their guns. You know, that strategy actually contributed in some ways to the politicization of the National Rifle Association and the creation of the, you know, the kind of take no prisoners organization that we know today. What's fascinating about the NRA is how its, its identity has shifted over time. This is Scott Meltzer. He's a professor at Albion College. He wrote the book Gun Crusaders, the NRA's Culture War. It was essentially just a, a sportsman's organization in the 19, 1900s. After World War II, uh, it became more politicized. After JFK's assassination, the NRA actually supported some gun reforms. The NRA's executive vice president at the time was Franklin Orth. He agreed with restrictions on mail-order sales of rifles and shotguns. That's how Lee Harvey Oswald got the rifle that killed President Kennedy. Orth had some issues with the bill, but in the end, he said it was something gun owners could live with. But it turns out, they couldn't. There was a factional split from the organization. These hard-line gun rights supporters essentially took over the NRA in a coup in the late 1970s. 1977, to be exact. It was called the Revolt in Cincinnati. This leadership takeover fundamentally changed the NRA. And it wasn't just about guns. We had essentially a perfect storm at that time uh, that gave rise to this movement. I see the NRA as part of this uh, gun rights kind of backlash movement uh, against the liberal group rights movements of the 1960s and 70s, a response to uh, civil rights movements and women's rights movements and so forth, in conjunction with being a response to the, the growing push for gun control of the 1960s. Scott points out that the NRA isn't just a special interest group like the AARP. It looks more like a social movement. Too often, the NRA is uh, inappropriately called the gun lobby. Uh, it has a powerful gun lobby, but really their power lies with their uh, deep and uh, intensely passionate base, folks who will uh, call and certainly lobby uh, their own representatives. The reason why it has so much influence and power is because it has uh, several million members at minimum, and a big chunk of those folks are deeply committed, passionate, uncompromising defenders of gun rights. The NRA also benefits from how it's organized. It's set up like a federation, with member groups at local, state, and federal levels, mirroring our own government. This lets the NRA and other gun groups really maximize their influence across the political system. The NRA's power lies in, in its people power. And that's essential for a social movement. And this people power started to translate into electoral victories. The NRA endorsed Ronald Reagan for president in 1980, a first for the organization. A year later, Reagan was the target of a failed assassination attempt with a handgun. But that didn't change the president's mind on guns. Reagan, a lifelong member of the NRA, addressed the NRA at its annual convention in 1983. Guns don't make criminals. Hardcore criminals use guns. And locking them up, the hardcore criminals up, and throwing away the keys, the best gun control law we could ever have. 
1986, Reagan signed the Firearm Owners Protection Act. The law banned the manufacture and sale of machine guns, but it also rolled back many restrictions from the Gun Control Act of 1968, like interstate gun sales. It also put limits on the ability of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to make sure gun dealers weren't selling to criminals or other prohibited groups. The law also banned the creation of a national gun registry, that missing piece of the 68 Gun Control Act that President Johnson wanted so badly. But gun reform would have a brief rally in the 1990s. Bill Clinton won the presidency in 1992. He was the first Democrat to hold the office in 12 years. Clinton oversaw the passage of two big gun reforms. He signed the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act into law within his first year in office. The Brady and the Brady Bill was James Brady, Ronald Reagan's press secretary. Brady was shot in the head during the assassination attempt in 1981. He survived, but he was left partially paralyzed. The Brady Bill required federal background checks on guns purchased from federally licensed gun dealers. This background check didn't cover firearms sold at gun shows or internet sales, which hadn't become a thing yet. The next year, Clinton signed another gun reform, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act in 1994. This is probably better known as the Assault Rifle Ban. It prohibited the sale of new semi-automatic assault rifles for 10 years. But meanwhile, the NRA was going through another transformation. Wayne LaPierre became the NRA's top executive. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Charlton Heston becomes NRA president. From my cold, dead hands. The NRA had officially entered America's culture wars. They very wisely figured out that if they framed gun rights as a bigger culture war battle, whereby they could frame themselves as as victims of these left-wing attacks and heroic patriots defending against these left-wing attacks on American freedoms, that they could generate more and deeper support. And that's indeed exactly what happened. Scott Meltzer again. The NRA's politics revolve around framing themselves both as victims and heroes. It's an interesting contradiction. Uh, in one sense, they're, they're victims of this, this left-wing culture war battle, whereby they're expected to, in their minds, give up all of their rights and freedoms in order to uh, serve this, this greater liberal good. And on the other hand, they're heroes, they're patriots and freedom fighters defending uh, against these leftists slash communists, slash socialists, slash liberals, uh, who are trying to take away all individual rights and freedoms. And they refer to themselves as the oldest and biggest civil rights organization and frame themselves as civil rights activists in some ways. It's a really interesting turn of phrase for the NRA. But this hardline posture took a toll, at least for a while, on the NRA's support. After the Oklahoma City bombing, for example, Wayne LaPierre referred to federal agents as jackbooted thugs. Critics pounced on the group's tone-deaf comments. President George H.W. Bush, a Republican, publicly left the group in protest. The outcry was brief, though, and the NRA continued to grow. And then in 1999, the debate over guns in America took a disturbing turn. That's when two students killed 13 of their classmates and teachers 
at Columbine High School. The massacre reignited the call for gun reform, and moms were front and center. I've been really fascinated by how maternal frameworks mixed with sort of badass feminism in this kind of hybrid framework has been really powerful in mobilizing 30 and 40-something mothers with small children. Kristen says social movements in America built around the identity of motherhood are hardly new. It was almost like that was the secret sauce. And it may be in part a function of the fact that middle-class women have been the kind of stalwart social reformers throughout American history. And so a maternal framing felt, you know, natural and, and spoke to their experiences and backgrounds. But the prohibition movement, for example, began with mothers picketing saloons because their husbands were inside drinking away the family income. In the late 1990s, this social reform movement took the shape of the Million Moms March. In 1996, there were 15 handgun-caused deaths in Japan, 30 in Great Britain, 106 in Canada, and 9,390 in the United States. This has got to stop. Some 750,000 people marched on Washington, D.C., demanding gun reform. Four thousand six hundred and forty-three children in the United States were killed with guns. That's 13 children every day, a Columbine massacre every day. This has got to stop. And then... Nothing. The Million Mom March kind of hit at an interesting time. That march happened in 2000. So just a few months later, we had the presidential election, an NRA-supported Republican won, 9-11 happened, and, you know, the whole gun control movement went into sort of a period of quiescence. Assault rifle sales restarted in 2004. President George W. Bush signed the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act in 2005. That law granted broad legal immunity for gun manufacturers and distributors, for crimes committed with their products. I would say legislatively, um, at the national level, the pro-gun side has made uh, some significant strides in terms of policies. The way that we, at the state level, legislate or regulate carrying concealed firearms in public has undergone a quiet revolution in the direction of gun rights. So whatever happened with the Million Mom March? There are a lot of things you could point to, but here are two big ones. A lack of institutional support and a big, big passion gap between both sides. Both gun rights and gun reform groups talk about themselves as grassroots organizations. But Kristen says that only gets so far without consistent, reliable support from institutions and elites. Gun control groups... Really, you know, they had a little bit of support from churches. They had kind of moral support from a lot of voluntary organizations, but they didn't have those, those kinds of sources of steady support. So their fortunes tended to wax and wane. So if there was a big, you know, high-profile shooting, maybe of somebody important, money would flow in right after that, but then it would dry up. And um, there just wasn't the kind of steady institutional and financial support. 
Groups like the NRA have membership dues and private donations that give them the resources to lobby Congress and state houses. Gun violence prevention groups, on the other hand, were pretty broke. They did not have, you know, external sources of support. And in fact, some in some cases, the NRA had, you know, worked through government to deprive these organizations of external sources of support. The other big problem is the passion gap. Think about background checks. Poll after poll suggests the American public generally supports background checks, but they never get passed. Why? The reason for that is because there hasn't been a robust gun control movement to pressure members of Congress. And there has been a very powerful and influential and effective gun rights movement led by the NRA. So public polling data be damned, the passionate politics has been on the gun rights side, and that's prevented federal gun control legislation of any significance. Not even the seemingly never-ending wave of mass shootings since Columbine has spurred action for gun reform. The NRA goes dark in the wake of a shooting because they don't need to appeal to the general public. That's not where the NRA's power derives from. It derives from their mostly, from their most committed, deeply conservative members. Those are the folks who vote in every election. Those are the folks who call their representatives in the House and the Senate. Those are the folks who show up at rallies. Those are the folks who donate lots of dollars to the NRA and to the gun rights fight. Those are the folks who are single-issue gun rights voters. And what we haven't seen is anything approximating that on the gun control side. Historically, the gun violence prevention movement has not had anything like that base of support. Let's not forget that there was a Million Mom March, you know, almost 20 years ago, and there were um, pretty robust efforts to uh, expand gun control in the 1990s, and, and ultimately those failed. The biggest reason is because of inherently the nature of the debate. And that's a debate about values more than anything. Kristen Goss. You know, if politics is about taxes, there's room for compromise. So you might say that the top tax rate should be 50%, and I might say it should be 35%, and maybe we can come to agree, come together and agree on 42%. But, you know, if you think that guns are an existential threat to the moral order, and I think that guns are fundamental to my sovereignty and dignity as a human being, that's, that's very tough to find an in-between place. Scott Meltzer. On the gun control side, it's about violence, which is certainly important, but doesn't necessarily speak to a broader set of values. But on the gun rights side, defending guns does speak to defending a particular view of American freedom and American ideals. And it's easier to get people motivated and passionate when your issue connects to something much more deeply felt by them, when it speaks to their core ideologies and beliefs. That's the, to date, been the built-in advantage for the gun rights side. But that built-in advantage is eroding. The nation's gotten more polarized. Single-issue voters and blue-dog Democrats are largely a thing of the past. You know, the, that single-issue voter question really only matters if you have Democrats who might, you know, defect to the Republicans but for a gun control position. And, you know, that's that's just not how politics operates anymore. You know, I mean, if you're a de- chances are if you're a Democrat, you favor stricter gun laws. Chances are if you're a Republican, you, you favor less strict gun laws and, you know, you're going to vote your party. The single-issue voter thing I don't think is – 
I don't think it's the right question to be asking anymore, honestly. I think the right question to be asking is whether gun violence prevention or gun regulation is likely to animate people to you know, get involved in politics, to call their member of Congress, to um, make sure they vote in all the elections, not just the presidential election. So it becomes a, a, a mobilizing issue rather than the issue that decides whether you're going to vote for the Democrat or the Republican. This means that Democratic politicians in particular have far less to lose and much more to gain by taking a tough stance on gun reform. Democrats, even in purple states like Virginia, are running on gun violence prevention and gun regulation in a pretty assertive way rather than running away from the issue as as they have in the past. And new groups have come to the fore to animate the gun violence prevention movement. Kristen says that the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School and what's been seen as a total failure by lawmakers to take action might actually have been a turning point for the modern gun reform movement. Sandy Hook and then some of the tragedies that have come afterward, coupled with some pretty smart strategies on the part of organizations, coupled with money flowing into this issue that is enabling people and activists to organize, um, has you know, th- those factors have combined to keep this movement moving. And one of the most important outgrowths from Sandy Hook was another movement led by mothers. Moms demand action. They are really leveraging the women's identities as caretakers, as mothers, as badass women. Shannon Watts founded the group. She was folding her kids' laundry when she heard about the 20 children and six adults killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School back in 2012. Shannon used her background in corporate communications to launch Moms Demand Action on Facebook. What social media in particular have done is is, um, dramatically reduce the cost of locating sympathizers, organizing them, sharing information, building a sense of community and identity and momentum. Uh, You know, that's just not a costly thing anymore. It's free, essentially. And um, so I think that's been a big boost to the movement. The movement took off. Soon the group merged with Everytown for gun safety. That's the nonprofit supported by former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. And unlike the Million Moms March, Moms Demand Action has been focused on the states. Congress might get most of the media attention, but a lot can happen at the state level. At the state level, gun control organizations have, um, and, and allies in legislatures have had a sort of quiet revolution of their own in the areas of domestic violence, mental health, and to some extent, um, universal background checks. They're hobbled at the local level because so many states have preempted cities and counties from regulating firearms. Most most states have preemption laws that were in, you know, instituted at the behest of um, the NRA. States have a lot of lawmaking power. Those lawmakers are going to be more attentive to how these laws are actually implemented and, you know, providing, as I said, the, the guidance and the resources to agencies to actually implement these laws so that they mean something, that they're not just laws on the books. As American politics have veered to the right, many gun violence prevention activists have turned their attention to the states, where they've been able to get a lot more done. The states serve as incubators for change, experiments for how different gun policies work or don't. Kristen thinks the gun violence prevention movement has gotten a lot more pragmatic. They're better organized and better funded. Many are organizing as federations, 
mirroring our governmental institutions. And now, a lot more voices, not just moms, are joining the mix, including the voices of survivors and victims. This is especially true of the March for Our Lives. That's the student-led gun violence prevention group that formed in the aftermath of the Parkland shooting in 2018. A lot has changed. My first book had a subtitle, The Missing Movement for Gun Control in America. I would say that the movement is no longer missing. Moms and kids, terrified by school shooting after school shooting and left feeling vulnerable at the randomness of it all, are mad as hell. New political identities are emerging. Badass moms and badass youth. They're coming together, rising up, and getting tough. They're on the front lines to defend themselves and their families against gun violence, an existential threat to their most basic freedoms. They're victims and heroes. They've been energized by a sense of purpose, community, and moral authority. In our next episode, we'll talk with some of the moms and students at the forefront of America's gun violence prevention movement. That's next time on In Sickness and in Health. In Sickness and in Health is brought to you by Just Human Productions. Today's episode was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our theme music is by Alan Best. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast, how to engage with us on social media, and how to become a member and support the podcast at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.